humanitarian. There's a lot of academic research on crisis management and humanitarian aid. A lot of it, to be honest, don't really make sense or seems to speak to somebody like me who is primarily a, a practitioner. But today's guest of humanitarian, uh, Christian Uhr, is a associate uh, professor at Lund University and has always struck me as one of the academics who really come across as having a very profound empathy and understanding of the humanitarian or disaster management reality. His approach is multidisciplinary and very practical, aimed not just at describing what crises are like, but also trying to find out how to actually improve the way we perform during crisis. That's obviously a perspective that really speaks to me, and I enjoyed this conversation very much. I hope it's not too nerdy or geeky for you, but that you also hear the, the quite profound lessons that Christian has around how we think about crisis and deal with them. Enjoy the conversation. Christian Uwe, welcome to True Humanitarian. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you here. You are my favorite academics in the whole wide world. Christian, I don't know if you knew that, but you are. You are an associate professor at Lund University, uh, where you study emergency management and disaster response. You also work part-time with the Swedish uh, National Disaster Management Authority, MSB, where you operationally have worked with a couple of forest fires and lately with the, the COVID response uh, as an analyst. So tell us a bit about your, your academic interest. What is it you study? Uh, what are the main themes you pick up and, and some of the key lessons you see emerging from your work? Well, I'm, I'm a generalist. That, that's what I am. I try to employ different theoretical tools in order to understand the real world when it comes to emergency and disaster response. And my ambition, at least, is to try to use this knowledge and have it as a basic um, foundation for design, so to improve emergency and disaster response. I think that it's so important that the research world actually moves beyond the descriptive side uh, of things and try actually to, to move on and suggest solutions. So that's the thing. And I also think that in order to do that in a good way, you need a broad setup of tools, analytical tools. That's why I think, well, I choose to be a generalist. And when you say generalist, you mean social scientist? Uh, do you have an engineering background? What's your, what, what's your background actually? Well, actually my background is quite mixed. I'm an engineer from the beginning, um, but I also studied psychology and sociology. Um, so I'm, I'm into organization, I'm into to, uh, working processes, I'm into trust relations, into cognitive aspects like decision making, and I'm trying to find a, some way a good mix um, to play around with these tools that actually I think can help us to understand emergency and disaster response management from a broader perspective. It's so easy just to dig deep into one um, aspect and get stuck there. Yeah, and I think what you said about not just describing the way things work, but really trying to make yourself part of the mess and, and changing things, that that very much corresponds to my experience of you and your research and the way you talk about it. And so so the obvious question is, so so how does it work? How does disaster management work? What 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 do you see coming out of your research? Well, one thing that I 
have seen uh, during my studies. Um, now I, I must admit that this is a kind of a descriptive reasoning. So what I've seen based on studies of, of real disaster response, when I read different governmental reports, uh, research reports, UN reports, uh, FEMA reports and so on, MSB reports, I see that we experience the same challenges over and over again. And we have done this since the 60s or since the 50s when we begin doing research on this. Um, and it's a bit, I'm not saying surprising, but it's its a fact that I don't think all people involved in this business actually consider. It's nothing new. So so what are these challenges? What is it? What are the problems we are unable to solve? Well, we have some, some examples that I try to dig out from different reports and, and challenges that are interest well that interest me because they connect to to my different um aspects of uh, disaster response management the different angles i try to to approach this field from i well the first thing that comes to my mind is we're always surprised you know the black swan analogy uh, it seems to happen all the time so if you read reports key decision makers are surprised how could this happen we did we were not prepared and so on this is not to say that no one was prepared, but key decision makers quite often claim that they were not prepared. Um, and they were surprised what was going on and what about to happen and so on. The second thing that I can see is we are not going fast enough. Establishing management function in a major emergency or a big disaster is not going fast enough. It takes too long time to establish. And we have known this since the 50s. Um, it doesn't really matter if we're in China, in South Africa, in, in South America, in Sweden, US, Germany, you can see this type of challenges, problems occurring time to time. Um, also, there seems to be a lack of knowledge about the system. And now it's hard to say what is the system then. Now, but the, the different national systems, for example, um, they look quite different in different countries, but many reports show that people actually working within those systems have done enough, enough knowledge about their own systems. A lot of different organizations are involved in the disaster response. It's not easy to have to grasp the whole complexity, but there is a lack of knowledge about the existing systems. And you can see that also in different countries. And you have seen that since, well, since the 50s, since the 60s, when we began doing studies. Oh, is that it? Do you have more? Oh, I have more. <laughs> uh, we tend to focus on the difficulties with parallel authority structures. Just explain what that is, the parallel authority structures. A parallel authority structure is that we try to, well, we have arranged many of our different response organizations in a command and control structure. It's a hierarchy and it's, well, it's suitable and it, it, it's quite logic from a certain perspective. But they also create some challenges from a holistic perspective when you have these different uh, parallel authority structures coming together at one time. It well, it leads to challenges. And I think all people who are working with international disaster response, they're quite aware of those challenges. Um, that's nothing new. It's just a fact. That's how it is. And we're not going to change that. That's how it is. We need to cope with it. Um, if I continue with these challenges, um, I also see that so many reports uh, from yeah from today and, and 50 years ago we have a hard time achieving coordination 
doing things in the right order, helping each other when we can, avoiding being in each other's way and so on. A different way is how to actually define coordination, but it doesn't really matter. We have a problem of achieving it. And it's been a problem, yeah, since we began studying this. Um, and another thing that's not really a problem, it could be a problem, but we can also see it in different reports. And it seems to be all around the globe as well, is it's about knowing the right people. And I'm not sure that we have the right strategies in order to, 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 to achieve that. But when you ask people working in disaster response, many of them, most of them would say, well, it's about knowing the right people. And there are many, well, challenges with this fact, but still it's there and we need to cope with it. So that, that's, I'm not saying that is a, it could be a problem from a democracy perspective, for example, but it is what it is and we need to work with it. So I think we have, I can probably give you 10 more examples of things that we have seen like the past 70 years. I think it's plenty. I think this, <laughs> otherwise we're going to have an extremely long episode here. But I think if I can just recap what you, what I heard you saying is that the black swans are black swans and we say, seem not to be incapable of, of remembering that they do happen. So we get always surprised when it happens. And then when we are on our heels because it's a black swan, we don't, we have a lack of agility. We don't get on top of things quick enough. We don't gear our capacity up. We don't really understand the machine, how it works also because the machine is probably changing because of the black swan as, as it evolves, or at least it functions differently in a crisis than it does in everyday life. Um, we, we, we have all these parallel structures that don't quite, it's a round peg, square hole or whatever, the other way around doesn't fit at least. And we, we get obsessed with coordination. It's never enough. Um, we, we, we At least the story we tell afterwards about the, the crisis is, oh, we didn't coordinate this well enough. And finally, it's the old boys or old girls club that runs the show. You go to the people you know, not the people you should. And that potentially produces suboptimal outcomes. May I, may, may I object? <laughs> you, um, well... Is not a really hard objection, but you use the word machine. Um, to me, that's a bit of a trap. I believe that this world, we cannot treat the resources as a machine. It's a living thing. And, and, and treating it as a machine will lead you the wrong way, I think, when it comes to management. I agree, and I stand corrected. I, and I'm really highly annoyed right now because I, it's a point I often make. It's, it's not engineering, it's gardening. I, and, and so I'm, I'm, I'm with you. We're dealing with a complex system and the metaphors we should be looking for is much more that of an ecosystem, a garden, something like that. You can prune it, you can weed, uh, you can sow new things, you water it, and then you see what happens. So, so I'm with you 100%. And I apologize for my, my, my lack of precision. But that's all well and good, uh, Christian. We, we've now done what everybody else does. We have diagnosed all of the problems. Now, you had the audacity to claim that you want to change things at the beginning of this conversation. So how do we change it? Well, <laughs> of course, it's a tricky question. How do you change this? Well, first of all, we have to diagnose the problems. Um, and as I said before, we have seen these problems and conditions for at least 70 years. Uh, actually, the first research on disaster response was in around the 20s, 1920s. Uh, Samuel Prince dissertation, but um, cocktail knowledge. But still, we have known things for a long time. Uh, what's happening is that we 
try to solve these problems. We, we're not living with them. We try to solve them. And I think that's the wrong approach. We need to find strategies actually to, to work with the problems, not having the idea that we solve them as we solve a, a, a machine, a solve a problem machine. We need to deal with them. Yeah, but I, I would put it this way. I think we often seek complicated solutions to complex problems. Yeah, yeah. And, and, we, yeah. and we, are, we are reinventing things. So, so we have different type of solutions to, to what we see as challenges or problems or however you like to frame it. Uh, and I can see that we, we are reinventing things. That's always, well, they have been invented before <laughs> and been implemented but forgotten. Give us, a, give us an example of that. Well, it, it's about structures, it's about processes, titles, and so on. Uh, we invent things, we just give them a new font or a new, new symbol and so on. Uh, we, we go back to the idea of, of, of um, bringing order through a command chain, for example. It, after every crisis, after disaster, you can see in the newspapers, you can see among different agents that we need someone in command and so on. And it's been like that for 50 or 70 years. We have the discussion um, and, and then we try to employ the solution with someone at the top, uh, more authority and so on. And then we have another crisis and we realize, ah, oh, maybe this didn't really work out as well as we thought. We go back to a more agile idea of things should be organized. Um, that's, that's one example. And we've tried so many ways of, of uh, working in different processes. Um, like staff management processes, been around for a long time. We change some squares, some some arrows, and we well, just we do this in this order instead. Things will go better. But I think we are moving in circles a bit. Um, sometimes we also reinvent problems <laughs> that need new reinvented solutions, like the focus on operational pictures, for example. Or you just need more information in order to understand the problem better so we can solve it. But now we have technology that gives us so much information, we just got stuck in the information and we, we're not acting because we are just drowning in information. So, so I think it, it's a bit, maybe it's a bit harsh to say that we run in circles, but to a certain degree, I think we, we need to change our mindset that we need to work with skills. Okay, because I think what I would love to do is let, let's try to do some kind of manifesto or whatever, because it, it's a it's a it's a massive problem that the story we tell ourselves about crisis is the wrong one, mm. and I think that's what it boils down to, mm. right? The, the, the these are not bugs; these are features. This is how the world works when it's in crisis, and so let's uh, come up with a manifesto. What do we? What, what is the story? What are the rules that we need to apply to get out of this cyclical nature of, of continuously not solving the same problems? Number one is what? I think it's changing the way we, we treat knowledge. That is, now it's easy for me to say since I represent some kind of academic world, but to me, it's really important to actually change how we approach and deal with knowledge. We need to be more strategic, understand that it takes time to implement stuff. Uh, you need to get knowledge to the right people. Um, the bureaucratic top nodes, the high bosses in the organizations need to be more aware of how crisis and disasters actually function, work. Um, we need to, to uh, build some kind of hands-on knowledge to deal with this complexity. We can organize away the complexity. We need to work with it. So it's about skills knowledge and skills 
that speaks to me because whenever we talk about knowledge management in literally all the organizations I've worked in, then somebody starts thinking about how do we structure the shared drive. And that's not how we share knowledge. We sit around the campfire and we tell stories. You go in and you have a cup of coffee with your colleague in the next next door room and so it's a much more organic process it's 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 storytelling and it's tacit knowledge that is in our heads not in some file that nobody can find anyways no that's i agree completely agree um and and, and knowledge and skills it has to do with with how you actually think about the world i, I really like the discussion about how we actually try to break down complexity and and uh, the difference between breaking down the complexity of a machine or to a living system. That, that's a way of thinking. Um, and these type of discussions, these type of, of um, that to me is a, is a conceptual skill. Actually working with complexity, understanding complexity, uh, cause and effects, um, they're really the hard problems understanding cause and effects, for example, that, that's one skill that's so much needed, much more important than I think, understanding all different bureaucratic structures everywhere. All right, so so I think we so our first point on the manifesto is brains, not hard drives. Yeah, yeah, agree. Okay, agree. That's a good one. So let's then uh, the second one you talk about complexity. For me, that's about having a high tolerance for ambiguity. Yep. Right, and and I think one of the paradoxes I see in 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 the way the business is developing these days is that. We work in incredibly unpredictable, uh, ambiguous situations, and yet the people we hire and promote are the most risk-averse people we can find. <laughs> the most risk-averse? Yeah, um, I mean, the, the, the people who like to control uh, details and, and, and make sure that... And I think a lot of... I mean, I understand why. I think a lot of it is around uh, sort of the hardcore accountability around... Uh, uh, financial and, and narrative reporting, not making mistakes, not getting in trouble with the donors, all of that stuff. So there are good reasons for it, but I think it comes back and bites us because if, if you are risk adverse, you tend to not have a high tolerance for ambiguity. You tend to, to want to control it, to grab it. And I don't think you can grab these things. And I don't think you actually train that skill. Uh, I think the, the, the conditions we live in now uh, especially when it comes to, to uh, people quite far up in the organizations, like the top nodes again, I think they, they are so filled up with every everyday management problems, like navigating, navigating in the field of internal politics or external politics or tearing down, building up their bureaucratic complex. Uh, it creates some kind of, of fickle or unstable environment, and it's not really good for strategic uh, knowledge development. That, that's what I see. It's very hard to get access to, to, to people high up in the organization and talk about this is what we should know. This type of knowledge is key. So if you had unlimited access to the top 10 decision makers in the humanitarian sector for two weeks, what would you do with them? How would you enhance their tolerance for ambiguity? Ooh, that's, that's a challenge. Uh, I would probably uh, begin with arranging a session about the knowledge, what, what can we expect from knowledge? Um, and, and talk about like things like evidence, what is science, what can we actually um, expect from science? So I'm more of a broad approach. And then I would talk about the, the, the field, the, the knowledge field of disaster management. There are so many things that we know 
And, and if people in those positions had that knowledge, I'm pretty sure that they would act a bit differently, quite hands-on. But you would put them in a classroom and talk talk on them. You wouldn't uh, have them dance tango or you know uh, play with Lego or something like that. Well, not playing Lego, I think, <laughs> but perhaps actually a mix. Sitting down in 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 an environment, drinking coffee, but talk about knowledge, talk about the need of knowledge and the strategy actually to develop knowledge and keep knowledge in an organization. So it's not this type of of. of um, an unstable environment. So we can create some kind of stability when it comes to how we actually develop knowledge and how we use knowledge in, in order to improve our capabilities and so on. But I think, as I said before, since we know that networking and, and knowing the right people is a kind of a key feature in disaster response, I think maybe dancing tango or talking about things that has not to do with, have not to do with, with disaster response might be a thing as well. Human skills is, is yeah, we all know that human skills is Okay, so firstly, we, we we think differently about knowledge management. We understand that it's all about people. We take aside uh, the top-level decision makers and we give them a one-on-one on what disasters actually mean. And we, I do want a bit of Lego and Tango in there. Can I have that? That could fit in, yeah. <laughs> all right. And then I think it's a lot of what you speak to. And, and one of the first things that struck me when when I met you was that you um, you speak about trust as something you can actually study and, and see, because we all know how important trust is. But I think we, we tend to think of it as something that's just there. But how do you actually, how do you grow trust? How do you grow social capital? How, how do you create an environment where people trust each other? Well, I think that's, I'm not as... It, Entirely, I don't know. My, my my exam is not in sociology, but but I have ideas. But to begin with, I would like to say that we need to, of course, we need to grow trust, but we also need to understand the effects of trust. We need to understand it how it actually influences the complex system. The trust relations actually influence how the system will behave, and and that is more of an analytical skill. I wouldn't say that that is a social skill. Then in addition to that, we need a social skill in order to build trust and keep it in order and do that um, in a democratic way, so to say, because as you said, it's easy to to just foster or to 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 bring energy to those boys clubs or girls clubs. So it's a balance. It's it's um, it's a tricky question. And I, we cannot build a complete and response capability based on trust relations. That, that that's, is probably not a good idea. So what? how do you then position trust in... You worked with, with a number of different agencies in strengthening their capacity to work with crises. So what is the role of trust there? And how, how do you concretely build it into a program? One thing you do in order to build trust is, is knowledge about people, knowing people, starting out just trying to 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 know who, know who is who and based on that of course you build trust relations and so on but trust is also you can talk about swift trust that's something that occurs during an acute event but you can talk also about uh, trust that's something that is developed on, under a longer time period um and to me it it it, it is a slippery discussion because there is a downside with this trust focus as well as i said before so, so just trying 
to build trust relations and not seeing those uh, downsides like mm, we are creating another network of certain type of people are thinking the same way. Um, we have to be analytical as well as social at the same time. So some self-criticism in this discussion is, is also quite important, I think. I don't have a clear answer actually how to build trust in a good way. So maybe you, with your experience, have some ideas that's well, I think there's. I think it's. You're right to focus on the two different kinds of trust. Uh, on one side, you have the swift trust, which I see as the situations where it's less risky to trust somebody than not to trust somebody. So you're really in trouble, and you don't know what to do. And this guy doesn't seem to be an active idiot, so he might be able to solve the problem. And anyways, if I don't trust him, what am I gonna do? So I trust him. And see what happens. That that for me is swift trust, right? That it's uh, it's the least risky option. And I don't know that you can shape that. I don't because I think that's quite unpredictable. And and we that that's that's just somehow the situation you end up in. But the other kind of trust, I think, is the one that develops over the years, where you have a professional community that bump into each other, either because they physically uh, work in close proximity to each other. I think Geneva is, is an obvious example of a hub like that where where we tend to bump into each other and when we then suddenly all are searched out to the Philippines, then you know we, we know each other and, and 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 that that really greatly facilitates things. I also do see the downside. I, I, I do think that for example, if you search 20 people from Geneva to the Philippines, they become a bubble that don't connect properly with the Filipino uh, setup, right? With, with, the, with the domestic setup, uh, potentially. And, and so you have to be really careful with the exclusive nature of trust also. I guess if you trust some people, they're implicitly also people that you don't trust. Right? So you grant access to certain people and that of course reinforces uh, existing power relations so i think i do agree with you that it is a problematic concept in that sense at the same time i can't help feeling like we don't work deliberately enough with creating environments where trust can can uh, can can emerge i've sometimes sat on on the planning uh, of, of big conferences and i've thought okay I think the best thing we can do here is just double the length of the coffee break. I agree. I just want to add this. I, I was looking for a word here, but if I, the really downside, the real downside of trust would be corruption. And we don't want to end there. It could lead to corruption, but I, I believe that, that building trust also is so necessary. You can see research. I've been many reports and many dissertations on trust and trust in, in, in crisis management or disaster management. And one thing that you can see, for example, Mishra, quite famous researcher dealing with trust issues, connecting it to crisis management, uh, says that, that you need trust in order actually to be able to communicate in, 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 a, in a fast, uh, clear way during crisis. So that's one thing. Um, you can see that trust relations actually lead to better coordination. And that is a problem we've seen, yeah, for 17 years. So, so there are many arguments why trust is good. It feels good to trust people as well. So we have many different aspects of trust that you can consider um, as key features uh, in, in crisis management or disaster management. But on the other hand, and the coin always has two sides, 
um, is yeah, it's corruption. So so we have to be aware. And I think that it goes back a bit to to the question you had: uh, How would I treat the top nodes in order to actually um, increase their capabilities or their knowledge? Or um, and well, exercising. I, I say exercise, train. I believe that those type of, of, of activities are so important. Maybe it's better to spend two more hours on exercising, training a scenario or whatever, than to, to just study more abbreviations and, and uh, organizational charts. So we agree on the Lego, actually. Mm. Yeah. I'm thinking when, when I'm looking at the list of challenges and the things we get wrong all the time, I'm thinking... Yeah, it's no wonder that we always get surprised, that we lack agility, that we don't understand the system because it's a big cuckoo clock that we have constructed for something else, that, you know, we we get obsessed with parallel uh, authority structures. Uh, you know, these, you're describing how a bureaucracy reacts to chaos. That's what you're describing. Mm. And the bureaucracy is, is created to to create predictability, right? When you push the button, you want the blue candy come out every time. Yeah, it's a machine. Yeah. And so aren't we caught in the situation where unless we we find a fundamentally different type of organizational setup, it's not going to change. These problems that that you have listed and that you say we've been battling with for, for decades, they will stay with us unless we, we, we find a different um, habitat. Yeah, well, I think to a certain degree, we have, we have to live with them. We have to read the first thing I would say in a course is we have probably to live with these challenges. We need just a way to work with them. Like your the, the problems are a part of your garden <laughs> and you need different tools in order to deal with these challenges or problems. Um, yesterday, we, we talked about problems like if you are a hammer, every problem will look like a nail. And I really like that metaphor because I think it, it's so valid. Um, both in a, well, in the academic world and in the more professional world, I would say that don't be a hammer, be a Swiss army knife and more when, when you walk around in the garden and try to do stuff, both before something happens and during uh, an event. So that's another way of, of, I don't know, changing the mindset. We need to expand our, broaden up our mindset on what type of different tools we can have in order to work with this living organism that's there during a disaster response because it's not a machine so i'm trying i'm, I'm trying to think through different uh, options for institutional design right because on, on one side the the one strategy would be to work within the existing hierarchies and say yeah let's get the top guys out and, and get enhance their their tolerance for ambiguity and get them some knowledge and some skills so that they get better or you could say, no, we need the we need the special ops here. We need that little, totally, we need the skunk works in a sense. We need that little group of highly specialized people. And the only thing they do is that when the balloon goes up, they run around and garden the humanitarian garden. They weed it out. They, you know, they, they sow some new stuff. They, they make sure that flow is reestablished in a sense. And then if we have that little specialized unit, then... It doesn't really matter that the mainstream is bureaucratic and slow, that they're surprised, that they lack knowledge of the system, because there's a gardener running around making sure that the worst problems are weeded out. 
I think it's not black and white, and I think it's all about perspectives. For some people, for some resources, you don't have to consider complexity. You can just be a very hands-on manager, dealing with a limited uh, amount of the total problem area. <laughs> um, one weed, for example, in your garden, you can deal with that without really grasping the complexity. But if you are like a disaster manager, trying to understand different resources at the same time, or just operating with different rationals, um, rationalities, uh, you need this complexity, uh, complex understanding. And so, so it's, it's, it's about perspectives. Uh, to me, well, you can say it's an ontological question from a scientific perspective that the world is complex. Our disaster response system is complex, but you can also see it from an epistemological perspective, meaning how do we understand this? How do we perceive this? And, and, and some people, some managers may not need to, to really grasp this complexity, just focus on their little thing. And that's not really needed to, to understand how everything is connected to everything. So, so it's a matter of perspective. Um, and, and I think for a manager quite what covering, trying to understand the whole garden, if you use this metaphor, you must be able to understand the different perspectives. At one point, you stand there just looking out, see the whole garden. And on another time point, you just have to go down to the weed and just see the weed and what to do with the weeds. You need to change perspectives. And that is another key uh, skill, I would say. To me, that's a conceptual skill, thinking abstractions um, at one hand and then just move down and work with your hands. And you need to be able to do this. So, so I think swifting perspectives is such a key thing. And understanding different perspectives at the same time is a skill that we need to develop. And, and that's also a thing that would bring up with the senior uh, managers, top nodes in the different organizations. So you studied many different systems. Where do you think they got it right? What's your, which, which country or which organizations have you seen where you're like, yeah, these guys, they know what they're doing? Yeah, well... I probably put it the other way around. If I if I study different systems, you can see many differences around the world. How the countries have designed their response systems, how they have designed their societies, um, and you can see different cultures, and you can see different ways of dealing with knowledge and 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 work with knowledge. But at the same time, you see these problems that I just have listed, and you see them everywhere. So it doesn't really matter. I mean, to be a bit cynical here, uh, I don't think there is a perfect solution because if there were a perfect solution, one country or two would probably have found it at this stage. That's what I mean, that we have to live with those problems, not trying to, to just wipe them away. We need to work with them. It's a part of your garden. And and, and um, uh, many metaphors here. But I think it's, it's um, that's a key message here. We think that, yeah, in Sweden, for example, we quite often we, we glance at the US and they have their incident command system. And at the moment now, people are talking about NATO, the way of NATO are arranging uh, staff functions, management functions. It's It sounds cool and it, it's very functional and so on. And and it's I think it's like that around the globe. We have ideas of, of others doing stuff in the right way. But when you look at for, for example, US, they also have these problems, though they have ICS. I think you just have to explain what ICS is. ICS is Incident Command System. Um, uh, well, it's a long story, but it, it, it's the, the, well, the, the US system for 
organizing and dealing with with emergencies and and crisis. Okay, so you're the, you're the academic here. I'm the layman. Let me give you my my version of what ICS is, and you can contradict me. Right? Whoever gets there first puts on a T-shirt that says "Incident Commander," <laughs> and the only rule is that when you show up, you go look for the guy with the T-shirt, and you say, "Hi, Incident Commander." I'm so-and-so unit, I can do this and this for you, what you want me to do. And he tells you where to go and what to do. And if somebody more qualified comes comes in, then the incident commander takes off his T-shirt and gives that to the new guy and says, hey, congratulations, you're now the incident commander. So you have a you have a system that evolves according to which capabilities are there, and you have a unified command structure. And the only thing people need to know is who has the T-shirt. I think you have to offer your services to uh, FEMA. <laughs> Give them a call. Yeah, I agree. That, that's probably that's one way of understanding it. Um, yeah. <laughs> and you can see th- this type of, of solutions. That's, that's what I meant in the beginning. You can see many versions of this type of solution, but still, we have those problems in the garden we need to deal with. Um, so I'm not saying that if you have um, ICS system or if you have if you employ NATO's version of, of, of trying to arrange a staff function or whatever you will get rid of those problems that's not true you will probably will deal with those problems in a better way if you enhance your skills and you enhance the skills by better thinking and more more another way of, of dealing with with the knowledge uh, it's the way how, how you think and act not so much about the formal systems what I hear you saying is that it's a craft, not an academic exercise. Partly, yes. Um, but I will not really exclude the academic part of it. Now I'm very biased, of course. But I think that being able to think complexity is a skill that you develop within academia. So, so I, I'm trying to, to connect, well, the, the real problems here with the more theoretical discussions we have at academia, but at the academic, in the academic world. But I think that that... that it's it's a mistake to 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 polarize saying oh we have the real world and we have the academic world i think the academic world actually tries to understand and tries to develop tools to to understand and improve uh, the professional side so so um but i'm also a bit critical to to how some uh, academics actually are approaching this because it's it's a difference being an academic and and a professional crisis manager so I, I feel terrible. We started the manifesto and I feel like we, we got lost in a very interesting discussion. So I, I think we might have to finish that another day. But I, for me, the overarching thing coming out of, of this is that we have to think about the way in which we, we think about crisis, the story we tell about crisis, and the way we handle knowledge and pass that on and create across the many different actors that collaborate in a crisis a shared understanding of what this elusive thing called a crisis actually is. I agree. We, we have to, to, to create an environment where knowledge is developed, not only a season, it's not only a seasonal thing. So, so I think that that's why I'm, I'm so keen on reaching those top nodes because they have uh, the mandates to actually to create this, this um, setting the stable setting that is necessary to actually uh, create and develop knowledge. Um, so, so I think that's so important. And, and yeah, they're in the front line for the development. It, that's how it is. They should be the key gardeners. 
should be, but I think often they actually lack that hands-on operational experience you speak of to really understand and, and own that a crisis is a, is a severe loss of control. It really is you're in the deep end and you, you don't know what to do. And when you are at the top of a big hierarchy, your daily life is the opposite often. Yeah, of course there are crises and whatever, but, but your own integrity or your own positioning is, is not challenged in that way. You don't experience necessarily that level of loss of control. I, I don't think you do. I think you still, you may be losing the football game, but you're still on the pitch. There is a pitch. There are rules, right? It, it's, not, it's not like you're, you're just in, in, in absolute chaos. And so I'm not sure they always get it. I think they overestimate the level of control we have. And that's where a lot of these problems you mentioned actually stem from. They're surprised that it could go so bad. They, they lack agility because of, you know, they're used to working with the machine and, and suddenly that is not working anymore. And so I get what you're saying in terms of wanting access to the, the, the top level or the top tier. But I also think that maybe you would find more fertile ground for your thinking and your projects sort of in the middle, at the operational level, in a sense. The people who, who still have fresh operational experience. Yeah, I, I, I agree. If, if, I, if I'm about to just try to, to identify where the disaster management or crisis management knowledge is today in organizations, I would say that knowledge is on a quite low level in an organization. And that's a problem because that doesn't really help the long-term strategies. It needs to be at this low level as well, but we need actually need to, 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 to build this uh, attitude towards knowledge on a high system level among the top nodes so they can help uh, long-term strategies. So we don't have this circle, moving in circles again. So I think the only, well, the key um, solution is to have another mindset when it comes to knowledge. Um, and, and they need to be more open and, and they need to spend time exercising, taking lectures and so on, if they're supposed to be managers during a crisis. Otherwise they can stay managers during normal everyday management. So I think we've covered quite well uh, the diagnosis of the problems, the way in which we fail and the way we think about crises and, and seem to get stuck all the time. When, when you look at your research today, what are you most excited about? Where, where's, the, where's there for you most energy in terms of, of moving forward? Well, I think you, well, it's, that's not about research, but yesterday we had a lecture in Lund um, in a class where international students studying uh, the course that I run at the moment, Introduction to Disaster Response Management. And I'm so satisfied when I hear these students. Um, really clever people. Um, it's such a great honor to, to actually facilitate their learning processes and so on. So that, that makes me happy um, for real. When it comes to research, um, I think that I still experience curiosity, that, that people are curious. Researchers are curious. And I think I see a trend that, that researchers, they are moving a bit towards the idea of, of going into more design research, not only descriptive research. Uh, working more with practice or practitioner, um, practitioners, professionals, 
Uh, I think I can say that, that my experience is that we see more of this now than 10, 15 years ago. Uh, so I think we are moving in the right direction. So Christian, thank you so much for, for an excellent conversation. Here, towards the end of it, I, I realized that we forgot to introduce the most interesting fact about you, which is not that you're a researcher, but that you're a mixed martial arts fighter. And so as we were talking, I was thinking of the famous uh, quote, everybody's got a plan until they get hit in the head, by I think it was Mike Tyson who said that. And in a sense, that's what happens to institutions. We all have a plan, and then Mike Tyson comes and punches you in the head, and everything falls apart. It's a good quote. I just must correct you because I'm I'm not a mixed martial art, um, uh, not well. I'm not a mixed martial artist anymore. <laughs> it was a long time ago, uh, but I like to to um, give you a quote back. I, I think it's so important for the academia or the academic world to be humble in this, and and uh, sometimes I believe that that the researchers they think well. I'm thinking, don't confuse me with facts. That's, that, that's not a, a quote that I really like. So, so we, from the academic side, we need to, to just stop and listen to the professionals. If we like to design stuff, if we like to improve stuff, we need to stop and listen. Thank you, Christian. Thank you for your research and your passion around this issue. I look forward to our collaboration in the future. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. It's about the rights and the freedom to be For people to choose their path in life and dream Souls of men beyond what you see Stages are different for each who will lead Cycles of outsiders that get fat checks Fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets Ask better questions, pick apart, educate And no one is safe, we're here to build and debate We are, we are searching for more Open up your mind beyond rich or poor For the truth You've been warned, humanitarian. <laughs>